folks. Let's talk a bit of review, shall we? Last time on Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. This is, of course, Sidecar Stories, and last time we read chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 5, titled A Conspiracy Unmasked, and chapter 6, titled The Old Forest. In chapter 5, we discovered there has, in fact, been a conspiracy. A conspiracy against the wishes of one very special hobbit, Frodo. Now, who could this conspiracy involve? Could it be the forces of evil? The enemy? The Dark Riders? No, it's his friends. <gasps> what? Yes, indeed. A conspiracy not to let Frodo go off into this alone. Samwise Gamgee, Frodo's gardener and uh, recently his friend, has been feeding information to some of Frodo's other friends. Yeah, JT, it's his yardener. <laughs> Frodo's yardener. Samwise Gamgee uh, has been feeding info to some of, of uh, Frodo's other friends. Peregrine Took, uh, Fredegar Bulger, uh, Mariadoc Brandybuck, and they have been conspiring not to let Frodo do this alone. They know that Frodo has been saying goodbye to some of his favorite people and places. They know that he's not sticking around once he gets to uh, Crick Hollow, I want to say it's called. Um, this new house that he's purchased, he's not staying there. Not, not for more than a few hours. And as such, when they arrive, they're ready for a bath and bed, and then when they wake up, before the sun rises, they're heading off to follow Frodo, wherever it is he may be going. They know he has to go east, and that's all anybody, kind of including Frodo, even knows. Uh, Fredegar Bolger is going to stay here, uh, stay in Crick Hollow, and wait for Gandalf to sort of point him on the way. Uh, but because of how close these Black Riders have been, they decide they're not going to take the roads. They're going to take a gate out into the Old Forest, and that is capitalized, the Old Forest. That is the proper name of this place, and it is called such because it is older than, than uh, any of the settlements in this territory, and it's it's pretty darn haunted. <laughs> you could call it haunted, you could call it enchanted, whatever you wish, but it's dangerous in there. Um, they cross through the wide hedge, and uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm kind of a hedge fan. Oh, God. That might be the nerdiest thing I've said this month. Um, uh, but <laughs> I think I think hedges are kind of cool. Um, it, it's, it's strange to think that of a hedge as like a defensive measure, but um, when you sort of see like what hedges can potentially be, you start to realize, oh, these were important back in the day. Uh, so they cross through this big hedge into the old forest and they just get lost and lost and lost more and more every hour. They're trying to travel through just to get to the other side of this old forest because they figured this was the way they were least likely to be followed by their pursuers, these black riders. Unfortunately, the old forest is its own danger, and it's guiding them closer and closer to the very part of that forest that they want to avoid, the deep heart of the forest, the Withywindle River. Finally, exhausted, getting strangely tired more by the second, they lay down by this big old tree and drift off to sleep. And of course, that is when tragedy strikes. The tragedy that has been reeling them in this entire time, it is the tree itself. Old Man Willow. We discover that Old Man Willow is, well, let's see, am I gonna, yeah, 
I am gonna. Old Man Willow's a bastard. Uh, <laughs> and he... Uh, <laughs> he does not intend for people to be traveling through his forest. We're going to be learning a little bit more about Old Man Willow here. Um, and all would be lost. Old Man Willow is trying to basically ingest the hobbits like a slow-acting Venus flytrap until Tom Bombadil comes along. Uh, an old man singing a song and traipsing through the old forest like it's nothing. He sings a song and, as of this song, ordering Old Man Willow to knock it off... Old Man Willow does so, and Tom Bombadil brings the hobbits to his home. And that is where we find ourselves. Folks, thank you so very much for joining me. I hope that you will enjoy this, The House of Tom Bombadil. One last bit before we jump in here. Uh, as of this week, I'm going to be closing down the vote to, uh, to adjust or keep the same, the timing of these streams. So if you want to have your say in that, by the time we get here next week, um, that vote is going to be closed down. So get in there tonight. Um, that is going to be over in Discord. If you want to find out more about that, uh, go ahead and use the links command. But as per usual, if you want to find that link, linktree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. Head to the Discord, and you can enter that vote. Um, it's up near the top. And then, of course, uh, you can join in with the other various things that we do over there, uh, including the <laughs> Realms of Recetus RP and Adventure Server, which is actually going to be growing this week. Uh, we have got a new zone opening up. Uh, so far, we have been hanging out aboard the Pine Pelican, uh, an airship of unprecedented magnitude uh but now we're about to open up the arena district back in the towers and so uh we've got a bot in there thank you very much to uh holly rose for helping out with that for putting me on the trail of Tupperbox, uh such that people can play multiple characters and you can enjoy these different zones um <laughs> we are rapidly populating the realms of recetus and boy am i excited about it um after we are after we use this arena zone as a test um that is when i plan to open up Vesperal Academy, and at that point, then things start to get nuts, because then we have got people doing RP stuff in the exact same place that we are holding our current campaign, uh, and I am, boy, am I thrilled for the overlap there. God, that's going to be exciting. Um, let's see, what else is going on? Uh, Tuesdays, Sherlock Holmes, Wednesdays, RPGs, Thursdays, this, and then on the late night, whenever I've got time for it, of course, we've got our Lore Master Oblivion playthrough, and... Uh, some late night lo-fi crafting nonsense everyone thank you so much for being here i love y'all let's see what we find in the house of tom bombadil Chapter 7 In the House of Tom Bombadil The four hobbits stepped over the wide stone threshold and stood still, blinking. 
They were in a long, low room, filled with the light of lamps swinging from the beams of the roof, and on the table of dark, polished wood stood many candles, tall and yellow, burning brightly. In a chair at the far side of the room, facing the outer door, sat a woman. Her long, yellow hair rippled down her shoulders. Her gown was green, green as young reeds, shot with silver-like beads of dew, and her belt was of gold, shaped in a chain of flag lilies, set pale blue eyes of forget-me-nots. About her feet, in the wide vessels of green and brown earthenware, white water lilies were floating, so that she seemed to be enthroned in the midst of a pool. Enter, good guests, she said, and as she spoke, they knew it was her clear voice that they had heard singing. They came a few timid steps further into the room and began to bow low, feeling strangely surprised and awkward, like folk that, knocking at a cottage door to beg for drink of water, have been answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. But before they could say anything, she sprang lightly up and over the lily bowls and ran laughing toward them, and as she ran, her gown rustled softly like the wind in the flowering borders of a river. "'Come, dear folk,' she said, taking Frodo by the hand. "'Laugh and be merry. I am Goldberry, daughter of the river.' Then lightly she passed them, and closing the door, she turned back to it, with her white arms spread out across it. "'Let us shut out the night,' she said. "'For you are still afraid, perhaps, of mist and tree shadows and deep water and untamed things. Fear nothing.' For tonight, you are under the roof of Tom Bombadil. The hobbits looked at her in wonder, and she looked at each of them and smiled. Fair Lady Goldberry, said Frodo at last, feeling his heart moved with a joy that he could not understand. He stood, as he had at times stood, enchanted by fair elven voices, but the spell that was laid now upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart. Marvelous, and yet not strange. Fair Lady Goldberry, he said again, now the joy that was hidden in the songs that we heard is made plain to me. O oh, slender as a willow wand, clearer than clear water, O oh, reed by living pool, fair river daughter, O oh, springtime and summertime and spring again after, O oh, wind on the waterfall and leaves laughter. Suddenly he stopped and stammered, overcome with surprise to hear himself saying such things, but Goldberry laughed. Welcome, she said. I had not heard that the folk of the Shire were so sweet-tongued, but I see you are an elf friend. The light in your eyes and the ring in your voice tells it. This is a merry meeting. Sit now and wait for the master of the house. He will not be long. He is tending to your tired beasts. The hobbits sat down gladly in low, rush-seated chairs, while Goldberry busied herself about the table, and their eyes followed her, for the slender grace of her movement filled them with quiet delight. From somewhere behind the house came the sound of singing. Every now and then they caught, among many a Derry Dole, and a Merry Dole, and a Ring-a-Ding Dillo, the repeated words, Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow, bright blue his jacket is, boots are yellow. Fair lady, 
said Frodo again after a while. Tell me, if my asking does not seem foolish, who is Tom Bombadil? He is, said Goldberry, staying her swift movements and smiling. Frodo looked at her questioningly. He is, as you have seen him, she said in answer to his look. He is the master of wood, water, and hill. Then all of this strange land belongs to him. No, indeed, she answered, her smile fading. That would indeed be a burden, she added in a low voice, as if to herself. The trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land belong to each themselves. Tom Bombadil is the master. No one has ever caught old Tom walking in the forest, wading in the water, leaping the hilltops under light and shadow. He has no fear. Tom Bombadil is master. A door opened, and in came Tom Bombadil. He had now no hat, and his thick brown hair was covered with autumn leaves. He laughed, and, going to Goldberry, took her hand. "'There's my pretty lady.' he said, bowing to the hobbits. Here's my Goldberry, clothed all in silver green, with flowers in her girdle. Is the table laden? I see yellow cream and honeycomb, and white bread and butter, milk, cheese, and green herbs, and ripe berries gathered. Is that enough for us? Is the supper ready? It is, said Goldberry. But the guests, perhaps, are not. Tom clapped his hands and cried, <laughs> Tom! Tom, your guests are tired. You are near forgotten. Come now, my merry friends, and Tom will refresh you. You shall clean your grimy hands and wash your weary faces, cast off your muddy cloaks and comb out your tangles. He opened the door, and they followed him down a short passage and round a sharp turn. They came to a low room with a sloping roof, a penthouse, it seemed, built upon the north end of the house. Its walls were of clean stone, but they were mostly covered with green hanging mats and yellow curtains. The floor was flagged, and strewn with piles of fresh green rushes. There were four deep mattresses, each piled with white blankets, laid on the floor along one side. Against the opposite wall was a long bench, laden with wide earthenware basins, and beside it stood brown ewers filled with water, some cold, some steaming hot. There were soft green slippers set ready before each bed. Before long, washed and refreshed, the hobbits were seated at the table, two on each side, while at either end sat Goldberry and the master. It was a long and merry meal. Though the hobbits ate as only famished hobbits can eat, there was no lack. The drink in their drinking bowls seemed to be clear cold water, and yet it went to their hearts like wine and set free their voices. The guests became suddenly aware that they were singing merrily, as if it was easier and more natural than talking. At last, Tom and Goldberry rose and cleared the table swiftly. The guests were commanded to sit quiet, and were set in chairs, each with a footstool to his tired feet. There was a fire in the wide hearth before them, and it was burning with a sweet smell, as if it were built of apple wood. When everything was set in order, all the lights of the room were put out, except one lamp and a pair of candles at each end of the chimney shelf. 
Then Goldberry came and stood before them, holding a candle, and she wished them each a good night and a deep sleep. Have peace now, she said, until the morning. Heed no nightly noises, for nothing passes door and window here save moonlight and starlight and the wind off the hilltop. Good night. She passed out of the room with a glimmer and a rustle. The sound of her footsteps was like a stream falling gently away downhill over cool stones in the quiet of night. Tom sat a while beside them in silence, for each of them tried to muster the courage to ask one of the many questions that he had meant to ask at supper. Sleep gathered on their eyelids. At last, Frodo spoke. Did you hear me calling, Master? Or was it just chance that brought you there at that moment? Tom stirred like a man shaken out of a pleasant dream. Eh? What? he said. Did I hear you calling? Nay, I did not hear. I was busy singing. Just chance brought me, then, if chance you call it. It was no plan of mine, though I was waiting for you. We heard news of you, and learned that you were wandering. We guessed that you had come ere long down the river. All paths lead that way, down to Withywindle. Old Grey Willow Man is a mighty singer, and it's hard for little folk to escape his cunning mazes. But Tom had an errand there, and he dared not hinder. Tom nodded as if sleep was taking him again, but he went on in a soft singing voice. I had an errand there, gathering water lilies, green leaves and lilies white to please my pretty lady. Last ere the year's end, keep them from the winter. The flower by her pretty feet till the snows are melted. Each year at summer's end I go for to find them. In a wide pool, deep and clear, far down with the window. There they open first in spring, there they linger latest. By that pool long ago I found the river daughter. Fair young Goldberry, sitting in the rushes, sweet was her singing then, and her heart was beating. He opened his eyes and looked at them with a sudden glint of blue. And that proved well for you, for now I shall no longer go down deep again along the forest water. Not while year is old, nor shall I be passing old man Willow's house this side of springtime. Not till the merry spring, when the river daughter dances down the withy path to bathe in the water. He fell silent again, but Frodo could not help asking one more question, the one he most desired to have answered. Tell us, master, he said, about the willow man. What is he? I've never heard of him before. No, don't, said Mary and Pippin together, suddenly sitting upright. Not now, not till the morning. 
<laughs> that is right, said the old man. Now is the time for resting. Some things are ill to hear when the world is in shadow. Sleep until the morning light. Rest upon the pillow. Heed no nightly noise and fear no grey willow. And with that he took down the lamp and blew it out. And grasping a candle on either hand, he led them out of the room. Their mattresses and pillows were soft as down, and the blankets were of white wool. They had hardly laid themselves upon the deep beds and drawn the light covers over them when they were fast asleep. In the dead night, Frodo lay in a dream without light. Then he saw the young moon rising. Under its thin light there loomed before him a black wall of rock, pierced by a dark arch like a great gate. It seemed to Frodo that he was lifted up, and passing over he saw that the rock wall was a circle of hills, and that within it was a plain, and in the midst of the plain stood a pinnacle of stone, like a vast tower, but not made by hands. On its top stood the figure of a man. The moon, as it rose, seemed to hang for a moment above his head, and glistened in his white hair as the wind stirred it. Up from the dark plain below came the crying of fell voices and the howling of many wolves. Suddenly a shadow, like the shape of great wings, passed across the moon. The figure lifted his arms, and a light flashed from the staff that he wielded. A mighty eagle swept down and bore him away. The voices wailed and wolves yammered. There was a noise like a strong wind blowing and on it was borne the sound of hoofs, galloping, galloping, galloping from the east. Black riders, thought Frodo as he wakened, and the sound of the hooves was still echoing in his mind. He wondered if he would ever again have the courage to leave the safety of these stone walls. He lay motionless, still listening. But all was now silent, and at last he turned and fell asleep again, or wandered into some other unremembered dream. At his side, Pippin lay dreaming pleasantly. But a change came over his dreams as he turned and groaned. Suddenly he woke, or thought that he had waked, and yet still he heard in the darkness the sound that had disturbed him. The noise was like branches fretting in the wind, twig fingers scraping wall and window. Creak, creak, creak. He wondered if there were willow trees close to the house, and suddenly he had a dreadful feeling that he was not in an ordinary house at all, but inside the willow, and listening to that horrible, dry, creaking voice laughing at him again. He sat up and felt the soft pillows yield to his hands and he lay down again, relieved. He seemed to hear the words echo in his ears. Fear nothing. Have peace until the morning. Heed no nightly noises. And then he went to sleep again. It was the sound of water that Mary heard falling into his quiet sleep. 
water streaming down gently and then spreading, spreading irresistibly all around the house into a dark, shoreless pool. It gurgled under the wall, and it was rising slowly but surely. I shall be drowned, he thought. It will find its way in, and then I shall drown. He felt that he was lying on a soft, slimy bog, and springing up, he set his foot on the corner of a cold, hard flagstone. Then he remembered where they were, and he lay down again. He seemed to hear, or remember hearing, Nothing passes doors or windows save moonlight and starlight, and the wind off the hilltop. A little breath of sweet air moved the curtain. He breathed deep and fell asleep again. As far as he could remember, Sam slept through the night in deep content, if logs are contented. They woke up, all four at once, in the morning light. Tom was moving about the room, whistling like a starling. When he heard them stir, he clapped his hands and cried, Hey! Come, Mary Dole, Derry Dole, my hearties! He drew his hands back on the yellow curtains, and the hobbits saw that these had covered the windows at either end of the room, one looking east and the other looking west. They leapt up refreshed. Frodo ran to the eastern window and found himself looking into a kitchen garden, gray with dew. He had half expected to see turf right up to the walls, turf all pocked with hoof prints. Actually, his view was screened by a tall line of beans on poles. But above and far beyond them, the gray top of the hill loomed up against the sunrise. It was a pale morning. In the east, behind long clouds like lines of soiled wool stained red at the edges, lay glimmering deeps of yellow. The sky spoke of rain to come, but the light was broadening quickly, and the red flowers on the beans began to glow against the wet green leaves. Pippin looked out of the western window, down into a pool of mist. The forest was hidden under a fog. It was like looking down upon a sloping cloud roof from above. It was a fold or channel where the mist was broken into many plumes and billows, the valley of the Withywindle. The stream ran down the hill on the left and vanished into the white shadows. Near at hand was a flower garden with clipped hedge silver-netted and beyond that gray-shaven grass pale with dewdrops. There was no willow tree to be seen. "'Good morning, merry friends,' cried Tom, opening the eastern window wide. A cool air flowed in. It had a rainy smell. "'Sun won't show your face much today.' I'm thinking I have been walking wide, leaping on the hilltops since the grey dawn began, nosing wind and weather, wet grass underfoot, wet sky above me. I wakened Goldberry, singing under the window, but not wakes hobbit folk in the early morning. In the night, little folk wake up in the darkness and sleep after the light has come. Ring-a-ding-dillo, wake up now, my merry friends, forget the nightly noises. Ring-a-ding, dear-o-dell, derry-dell, my hearties. If you come soon, you'll find breakfast on the table. If you come late, you'll get grass and rainwater. Needless to say, not that Tom's threat sounded very serious, the hobbits came soon and left the table late and only when it was beginning to look rather empty. Neither Tom nor Goldberry was there. Tom could be heard around the house, clattering in the kitchen and up and down the stairs and singing here and there outside. 
The room looked westward over the mist-clouded valley, and the window was open. Water dripped down from the thatched eaves above. Before they had finished breakfast, the clouds had joined into an unbroken roof, and a straight gray rain came softly and steadily down. Behind its deep curtain, the forest was completely veiled. As they looked out of the window, there came falling gently, as if it was flowing down, the rain out of the sky, the clear voice of Goldberry, singing up above them. They could hear few words, but it seemed plain to them that the song was a rain song, as sweet as showers on the dry hills that told the tale of a river from the spring in the highlands to the sea far below. The hobbits listened with delight, and Frodo was glad in his heart and blessed the kindly weather because it delayed them from departing. The thought of going had been heavy upon him from the moment he awoke, but he guessed now that they would not go further that day. The upper wind settled in the west, and deeper and wetter clouds rolled up to spill their laden rains upon the bare heads of the downs. Nothing could be seen all around the house but falling water. Frodo stood near the open door and watched the white, chalky path turn into a little river of milk and go bubbling away down into the valley. Tom Bombadil came trotting round the corner of the house, waving his arms as if warding off the rain, and indeed when he sprang over the threshold he seemed quite dry except for his boots. These he took off and put in the chimney corner. Then he sat in the largest chair and called the hobbits together around him. This is Goldberry's washing day, he said, and her autumn cleaning. Too wet for hobbit folk. Let them rest while they are able. It's a good day for long tales, for questions and for answers, so Tom will start the talking. He then told them many remarkable stories, sometimes half as if speaking to himself, sometimes looking at them suddenly with bright blue eyes under deep brows. Often his voice would turn to song. He would get up out of his chair and dance about. He told them tales of bees and flowers, the ways of trees, the strange creatures of the forest, about the evil things and good things, things friendly and things unfriendly, cruel things and kind things and secrets hidden under brambles. As they listened, they began to understand the lives of the forest, apart from themselves. Indeed, to feel themselves as the strangers, where all other creatures were at home. Moving constantly in and out of his talk was Old Man Willow, and Frodo learned now enough to content him. Indeed, more than enough, for it was not comfortable lore, Tom's words laid bare the hearts of trees and their thoughts, which were often dark and strange and filled with a hatred of things that go free upon the earth. Gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning. Destroyers and usurpers. It was not called the Old Forest without reason, for indeed it was ancient, a survivor of the vast forgotten woods. And in there lived yet, aging no quicker than the hills, the fathers of the fathers of trees remembering times when they were lords. The countless years had filled them with pride and rooted wisdom, and with malice. 
but none was more dangerous than the great Willow. His heart was rotten, but his strength was green, and he was cunning, and a master of winds, and his song and thought ran through the woods on both sides of the river. His great thirsty spirit drew power out of the earth and spread like fine root threads in the ground, and invisible twig fingers in the air till it had under its dominion nearly all the trees of the forest, from the hedge to the downs. Suddenly Tom's talk left the woods and went leaping up the gray stream, over bubbling waterfalls, over pebbles and worn rocks, and among small flowers in close grass and wet crannies, wandering at last up to the downs. They heard of the great barrows, and the green mounds, and the stone rings upon the hills, and in the hollows among the hills. Sheep were bleeding in flocks. Green walls and white walls arose. There were fortresses in the heights. Kings of little kingdoms fought together, and the young sun shone like fire on the red metal of their new and greedy swords. There was victory and defeat, and towers fell. Fortresses were burned, and flames went up to the sky. Gold was piled upon the biers of dead kings and queens, and mounds covered them, and the stone doors were shut, and the grass grew over all. Sheep walked for a while, biting the grass, but soon the hills were empty again. A shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. Barrow whites walked in the hollow places with a clink of rings on cold fingers and gold chains in the wind. Stone rings grinned out of the ground like broken teeth in the moonlight. The hobbits shuddered. Even in the Shire, the rumor of the Barrow Whites and the Barrow Downs beyond the forest had been heard, but it was not a tale that any hobbit liked to listen to, even by a comfortable fireside far away. These four now suddenly remembered what the joy of this house had driven from their minds. The house of Tom Bombadil nestled under the very shoulder of those dreaded hills. They lost the thread of his tail and shifted uneasily, looking aside at one another. When they caught his words again, they found that he had now wandered into the strange regions beyond their memory, and beyond their waking thought, into times when the world was wider, and the seas flowed straight to the western shore, and still on and back Tom went, singing out into ancient starlight, when only the elf sires were awake. Then suddenly he stopped, and they saw that he nodded as if he was falling asleep. The hobbits sat still before him, enchanted, and it seemed as if, under the spell of his words, the wind had gone. The clouds had dried up, and the day had been withdrawn, and darkness had come from east and west, and all the sky was filled with the light of white stars. Whether the morning and evening of one day or many days had passed, Frodo could not tell. He did not feel either hungry or tired, only filled with wonder. The stars shone through the window, and the silence of the heavens seemed to be round him. He spoke at last out of his wonder and a sudden fear of that silence. "'Who are you, master?' he asked. Mm, "'Eh? What?' said Tom, sitting up, and his eyes glinting in the gloom. "'Don't you know my name yet?' That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you, alone, yourself, and nameless? But you are young, 
and I am old. Oldest, that's what I am. Mark my words, my friends, Tom was here before the river and the trees. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. He made pass before the big people and saw the little people arriving. He was here before the kings and the graves and the Barrowites. When the elves passed westward, Tom was already here, before the seas were bent. He knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless, before the Dark Lord came from outside. A shadow seemed to pass by the window, and the hobbits glanced hastily through the panes. When they turned again, Goldberry stood in the door behind, framed in light. She held a candle, shielding its flame from the draft with her hand, and the light flowed through it, like sunlight through a white shell. The rain has ended, she said, and new waters are running downhill under the stars. Let us now laugh and be glad. And let us have food and drink, cried Tom. Long tails are thirsty, and long listening is hungry work, morning, noon, and evening. With that, he jumped out of his chair and with a bound took a candle from the chimney shelf and lit it with the flame that Goldberry held, and he danced about the table. Suddenly, he hopped through the door and disappeared. Quickly, he returned, bearing a large and laden tray. Then Tom and Goldberry set the table, and the hobbits sat half in wonder and half in laughter, so fair was the grace of Goldberry, and so merry and odd the caperings of Tom. Yet in some fashion, they seemed to weave a single dance, neither hindering the other, in and out of the room and round about the table. With great speed, food and vessels and lights were set in order. The boards blazed with candles, white and yellow. Tom bowed to his guests. Supper is ready, said Goldberry. And now the hobbit saw that she was clothed all in silver, with a white girdle, and her shoes were like fish's mail. But Tom was all in clean blue, blue as rain-washed forget-me-nots, and he had on green stockings. It was a supper even better than before. The hobbits, under the spell of Tom's words, may have missed one meal or many, but when the food was before them it seemed at least a week since they had eaten. They did not sing or even speak much for a while and paid close attention to business. But after a time, their hearts and spirits rose high again, and their voices rang out in mirth and laughter. After they had eaten, Goldberry sang many songs for them, songs that began merrily in the hills and fell softly down into silence. And in the silences they saw in their minds pools and waters wider than they had ever known. And looking into them, they saw the sky below them, and the stars like jewels in the depths, and once more she wished them each good night and left them alone by the fireside. But Tom now seemed wide awake and plied them with questions. He appeared already to know much about them and all their families, and indeed to know much of all the history and doings of the Shire, down from days hardly remembered among hobbits themselves. It no longer surprised them, but he had made no secret that he owed his recent knowledge largely to Farmer Maggot, who he seemed to regard as a person of more importance than they had imagined. There's earth under his old feet and clay on his fingers. Wisdom in his bones, and both his eyes are open, said Tom. It was also clear that Tom had dealings with the elves, and it seemed that in one fashion news had reached him from Gildor concerning the flight of Frodo. 
Indeed, so much did Tom know, and so cunning was his questioning, that Frodo found himself telling him more about Bilbo and his own hopes and fears than he had even told before to Gandalf. Tom wagged his head up and down, and there was a glint in his eyes when he heard tell of the riders. "'Show me this precious ring!' he said suddenly in the midst of the story, and Frodo, to his astonishment, drew out the chain from his pocket and unfastened the ring and handed it at once to Tom. It seemed to grow larger as it lay for a moment on his big, brown-skinned hand. Then suddenly he put it to his eye and laughed. For a second the hobbits had a vision, both comical and alarming, of his bright blue eye gleaming through a circle of gold. And then Tom put the ring around the end of his little finger and held it up to the candlelight. For a moment, the hobbits noticed nothing strange about this. And then they gasped. There was no sign of Tom disappearing. <laughs> Tom laughed again and then spun the ring into the air and it vanished with a flash. Frodo gave a cry and Tom leaned forward and handed it back to him with a smile. Frodo looked at it closely and rather suspiciously, like one who has lent a trinket to a juggler. It was the same ring, or it looked the same and weighed the same, for that ring always had seemed to Frodo to weigh strangely heavy in his hand. But something prompted him to make sure. He was perhaps a trifle annoyed with Tom for seeming to make so light of what even Gandalf thought so perilously important. He waited for an opportunity, when the talk was going again, and Tom was telling an absurd story about badgers and their queer ways, and he slipped the ring on. Mary turned toward him to say something, and gave a start, and checked an exclamation. Frodo was delighted, in a way. It was his own ring, after all, for Mary was staring blankly at his chair, and obviously could not see him. He got up and crept quietly away from the fireside toward the outer door. "'Hey there!' cried Tom, glancing toward him with a most seeing look in his shining eyes. "'Hey! Come, Frodo, there. Where be you are going? Old Tom Bombadil's not as blind as that yet. Take off your golden ring. Your hand is more fair without it. Come back. Leave your game and sit down beside me. We must talk a while more and think about the morning. Tom must teach the right road and keep your feet from wandering.' Frodo laughed, trying to feel pleased, and taking off the ring, he came and sat down again. Tom now told them that he reckoned the sun would shine tomorrow, and it would be a glad morning, and setting out would be hopeful. But they would do well to start early, for weather in that country was a thing that even Tom could not be sure of for long, and it would change sometimes quicker than he could change his jacket. "'I am no weathermaster,' he said, "'nor is aught that goes on two legs.' By his advice, they decided to make nearly due north from his house, over the western and lower slopes of the downs. They might hope in that way to strike the east road in a day's journey and avoid the barrows. He told them not to be afraid, but to mind their own business. You keep to the green grass. Don't go a-meddling with the old stone or cold whites or prying in their houses, unless you be strong folk with hearts that never falter. He said this more than once and he advised them to pass Barrows by on the west side if they chanced to stray near one. 
Then he taught them a rhyme to sing, should they fall by ill luck to any danger or difficulty the next day. Oh, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo, by water, wood, and hill, by reed and willow, by fire, sun, and moon, harken now and hear us, come Tom Bombadil, our need is near us. When they had sung this together after him, he clapped them each on the shoulder with a laugh and, taking candles, led them back to their bedroom. moments with Tom Bombadil, huh? Pretty Spade says, uh, I know that they, uh, you know, I knew they gave movie Treebeard a lot of Bombadil content, but I'm not sure I realized how much. Yes, indeed. We learned a lot of interesting new things in this chapter. Uh, I'm going to take a break, but let's kick off some of our chatter break first here. Um, we've got, we've got, uh, you know, Frodo and the Hobbits here, mostly listening and Frankly, this is technically exposition, I think we could say, um, about, you know, some of the events of the world, but most of it does not pertain to the, he the here and now, or at the very least, if it does pertain to the here and now, it's only very distantly. So much of what Tom Bombadil is interested in telling them deals with really deep history. I mean, one of my favorite paragraphs in here is one that I think my eyes just sort of glazed over at the time because I was having a hard time following some of this, uh, you know, some of this discussion that didn't really seem to have any any strong bearing to the present moment. Uh, there's one specific paragraph in here. I'm going to reread it to you all right now um, because I wasn't listening to it as this before, but if you listen to it as a montage as like a, a time lapse almost. It's really, really interesting, right? So he is talking about, um, he talks about Old Man Willow. He talks about why Old Man Willow is the way he is. He talks about how way, way back in the ancient times, there was once a massive forest, much larger than it is now. And uh, why these sort of the fathers of fathers of trees are so angry with people? Why are why are their hearts so dark? Well, it's because all these things that move around on two legs and four legs, they chew and they chop and they they blow your house down. No, they 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 are things that destroy the woods, right? The woods are the, the forests are smaller now than they were before. So he's talking about that. That itself, I think, is very interesting, right? Uh, you know, he's talking about how how ancient he is and how he's seen all of these things firsthand. I mean, that, that's kind of the one of the headlines of this chapter is, hey, this goofy dude who lives here with his strange wife, um, he was here before everything, before the elves, um, bef back before the darkness meant fear. That's a long time. That's that's more ancient than anything, right? What what is Tom Bombadil? And you know he could say all these things, couldn't he? Right? He could just be an odd dude that, you know, he, he and his wife sort of know how to sing at the right times and might know. I mean, that's so far he has not proved himself to be any more or less magical than Gandalf. 
right? Might as well be Gandalf. He could even be less strong than Gandalf and still be making up a lot of these stories. And then later on, he pops on that ring. We get a different look. But but I want to stay early in this discussion first. So he says he's been here for all this. Talks about Old Man Willow. But then I want, I'm going to read this paragraph to you and I want you to hear it. As, I want you to hear it like as if it were a movie script, as if this were how they were going to shoot this. I want you to imagine all this like really fast forwarded. Um, I want you to imagine uh, the, the sheep as they are here and uh, very quick versions of battles and rising towers and then those towers overgrowing with green and then falling once more and then being left simply just to the sheep themselves once more and then a shadow passing over this land and something happening to those ancient kings buried deep in their ruined castles. I want you to hear all that while I read this paragraph, all right? Suddenly Tom's talk left the woods and went leaping up the young stream, over bubbling waterfalls, over pebbles and worn rocks, and among f small flowers in close grass and wet crannies, wandering up at last to the downs. Okay, so here we go. They heard of the Great Barrows, those are both capitalized, G and B, great barrows, and the green mounds, and the stone rings upon the hills and the hollows among the hills. Sheep were bleeding in flocks. Green walls and white walls rose. There were fortresses on the heights. Kings of little kingdoms fought each other, and the young sun shone like fire on the red metal of their new and greedy swords. It was victory and defeat. The towers fell, fortresses were burned, and flames went up into the sky. Gold was piled onto the biers of dead kings and queens, and mounds covered them. And the stone doors were shut, and the grass grew over all. Sheep walked for a while, biting the grass, but soon the hills were empty again. A shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. Barrow Whites walked in the hollow places with a clink of rings on cold fingers and gold chains in the wind. Stone rings grinned out of the ground like broken teeth in the moonlight. <sighs> Don't forget, folks, we've got a second chapter to read here yet, but I just wanted to I wanted to revisit that passage there because he's giving a time lapse of the history of civilization in this area. Right? Think about that. What what these hobbits know as like, ooh, ooh, the Great Barrows, the Barrow Downs and all that. This this little area. Basically, it's just hills and some ruins. But we're talking ruins like, like Stonehenge, but small. Right? We're talking, just, you know, stone circles. We're not talking big ancient towers and, you know, big, big, uh, you know, dungeons that are, are creepy to go around and explore inside and get. No, no, no. No, no, no. We're talking about stone circles. There is so little left here of what was once there. There were sheep and shepherds and then those civilizations grew and there were little kingdoms. I love, by the way, I love that mention, kings of little kingdoms fought each other, right? I, I love that. It's, it is a, it is from the perspective of Tom Bombadil himself, of course. So yeah, in the grand scheme of time, little, small, almost inconsequential. And consider it now from the Hobbit's point of view, Something deep and minute in the past. Something you would have to really look close and examine if you wanted to see them at all. These stories of the the old kings of this place. I love that little passage. And then, of course, uh, after that, we find that there is something 
different about Tom Bombadil, right? We're not talking about just different in attitude. This dude throws on this ring like it's nothing. Like it's nothing. It is it is fascinating um, where where Tom Bombadil, you know, talking all this stuff, which could be could be total garbage as far as we know. And then he gives himself this massive little little bump of credibility when he throws this ring on and nothing happens. This is a ring that Gandalf, the most powerful being that we are aware of locally, is terrified just to hold in his hand. Right? He he will he will shout to keep this thing away from him. Um because of the power that it could access in him. And not only not only does Tom put it on and nothing happens, but he's not afraid of it. And in spite of this, he knows about it. It's not like he's ignorant of it. He knows about this thing. But it is somehow beneath him. It is of a power that is beneath him. And that's really interesting. It gives a lot of credibility to some of the other stuff he's been saying. Boy, if this is beneath him, then... He really must be something more powerful and very possibly then more ancient than than it looks like just being in this house with him and eating all of his sweet maple butter and and dope biscuits and stuff. <laughs> Sitting in his candlelight, nodding off to his stories. Proteus says, here's my Tom Bombadil theory. From what I understand, this theory is extremely basic, uh, but it's all I got. Tom, Tom Bombadil is basically Middle-Earth's iteration of the Green Man. He's a nature spirit attached to his woods. He's immortal, and he's separate from the wants and needs of people. He's sort of fey. And also, Goldberry is totally a naiad. I also nailed that when I was nine. I, I think you're I think you are largely right. I think there is like there's there's a deep connection to those myths. Um uh, and frankly, I am not so well versed in original, like OG Fey mythology. Um, but he's also he's also a little different, right? I think I, th I think he is virtually all of those things. But having him be the master, but also like not so much of the he's not the the lord of um, uh, of like storms and and weather, right? He's not the 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 lord of weather here because he expresses that. He nor anything that goes on two feet is uh, the master of the weather, um, which is interesting. And of course, Goldberry indicates that he doesn't own all of these things. These woods don't belong to him. These things each belong to themselves, but he is the master. What are we to understand that that means? It's very strange. It's very, very strange. And Grimalkin, I do like something that you've mentioned here. You've got, uh, to me, Tom Bombadil is the embodiment of the hope that the hobbits will carry with them upon their journey. They've seen the ring look defeatable now. And I think that that second point is a really interesting one. Um, just that they've seen this ring be something other than all-powerful, right? They've, Of course, they've grown up kind of seeing this ring being used for, I think it would be fair to call them relatively screwball purposes, <laughs> right? Um uh, Bilbo just used it to do a big prank on a lot of his neighbors. That, that I think is, that's some screwball behavior right there. Um, but then they've been hearing about how dark it is and how powerful it is and how it is the one ring to rule them all, to bring the entirety of Middle Earth under its dominion. And then this dude just sort of pops it on his finger like it's a ring pop. <laughs> I do really enjoy that moment also where it talks about how funny but also terrifying it is when 
Tom Bombadil holds the ring up to his eye, and you just see Tom Bombadil's eye looking through this ring. What made that moment so horrifying? It's a scene that I would love to see um, in a movie, not because I think it would necessarily add dramatically to the movie. Again, I know why they took this out, right? It, it would just be it would be a big break in some of the action. But at the same time, I just want to see how a director and how you know the artistic team would handle some of these things. It'd be fascinating. All right, let me leave y'all with a chatterbreak question. As per usual, folks, uh, I want y'all to be chattering whenever you wish. Uh, but these are things that I will, of course, be coming back to address after I'm done reading a particular chapter. Uh, but yeah, chat, chat as you will. Y'all have been doing good good work on that front. Um, but let's talk about our chatterbreak question. We are heading now around the Barrow Downs. Frodo's going to have to once again be on his way. What do we think this encounter has done to him this encounter with tom bombadil um grimalkin because you've already sort of begun part of this discussion i think this is a, a a good way to go what impact do we think impacts probably plural what impacts do we think this encounter will have upon the hobbits especially frodo There you go, folks. That's a chatterbreak question. What will be the impact, the, the lasting impacts of this encounter upon Frodo? With that, I'll see y'all in five minutes. I'll have the timer up on screen, and then we're going to launch into our second chapter of the evening. I'll see y'all then. I love what y'all are talking about. I love it. I'll see you in five. Hello and welcome back, my good folks. Hello, hello. Pretty Spade says, I have no idea how to answer this because I have read it before and I know the answer going in. Um, yeah, I think the our our Hobbit friends, um, you know, of course, we because it's not shown in the movie, I think we can assume that in that sort of in that iteration of this universe, it didn't happen. And as such, we are able to provide our own interpretations somewhat here um so if you've only watched the movie then uh, you need not worry about it. of course those of you who have read this it's a bit of a different story but um you know as we as we proceed on through this i want y'all to be keeping an eye out for that are there any moments where where frodo thinks about tom bombadil and if so what does he think about i mean i think the the of course, there's the bit of this discussion that kicked it all off, which is Grimalkin saying they've seen the ring look defeatable now, right? They've seen the ring as something other than all-powerful, something other than uh, this 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 little circle of darkness that even Gandalf uh, regards with a significant concern. Um, they've watched this thing just be a toy for somebody. For some, there's somebody out here in the world for which this thing is just a toy. But beyond that. It is funny how this, you know, this, this hope, right? Grimalkin says uh, that Tom Bombadil is kind of going to be the embodiment of hope. At the same time, it's kind of funny the things that Tom Bombadil chose to tell them about, chose to describe for them. Um, this, this little discussion here about these rising and falling kingdoms. Essentially, nothing can stay, right? I am Ozymandias. <laughs> Look upon my works, you mortals, and tremble. I want to say is the is the uh, <laughs> is the line, um, uh, and it's essentially just like, "Look at all of these huge, important things that I've done, 
and then I've made this plaque about it, and somebody thousands of years later has discovered this plaque, and the plaque is the only thing left. Thank you, Proteus Spade. Uh, <laughs> look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Right? And it's the only thing left. It's funny that he would show the hobbits this sort of vision about how insignificant any of the individual struggles or any of the individual civilizations are. These little kingdoms with their little, their new swords, they mean so little. An interesting comparison, an interesting kind of contrast between these two ideas. Shall we proceed now on to our next chapter? Of course, first we must engage in a bit of review. Frodo and the hobbits are well on their way now. Um, Frodo and the, the other hobbits, I should say. Um, Fredegar Bolger has been left behind to let Gandalf know where they are headed, but uh, Frodo is now underway with Samwise Gamgee, Pippin, and Merry. Um, and the four of them are going to head off and just continue east along the path prescribed for them by Gandalf. Uh, they're going to try to avoid the most dangerous places, and yet they seem to continually end up precisely in those dangerous places. They are pursued by black riders, these black-clad riders who uh, seem to be hunting them. Um, and uh, finally, they get into the old forest, which boy, seems like a safer option at first, and then the forest itself turns out to be its own danger until they find themselves rescued from uh, a living old tree that wants to do a ming, rescued by Tom Bombadil, who, over the course of the chapter that we read previous to our break, has revealed himself to be a most ancient and uh, uh, singular entity, right? This is not a person that we're dealing with. This is an entity, something older than rain and acorns, something older than darkness meaning fear. That's old. So here when the elves first showed up, kind of old, um, who has uh, sort of expressed to them that, A, hey, you're really safe here. Don't worry about it. Um, uh, he and his wife Goldberry live here together, and uh, the two of them seem to be uh, masters of this land. Uh, he, the masters of, he, he, the master of uh, wood and hills and one other thing, maybe you're, nope, don't remember what it is. Uh, and then she, uh, the master of rain and, uh, uh, and river, and the two of them just sort of seem to coexist with this place very, very comfortably. Tom tells the hobbits some stories about the kingdoms that used to exist here, how sort of insignificant they were in the grand scheme of time. He doesn't say that, but we sort of pick that up uh, about these small kingdoms. Um, and uh, he gives them some more practical advice as well. He, he seems to know quite a bit about their mission, um, and he is going to send them along uh, trying to circumvent the Barrow Downs, these these lands where once uh, you know powerful little kingdoms lay, uh, and now are nothing more than stone circles in the grass and hills. And of course, uh, in the big shock of the last episode, Tom Bombadil actually puts the ring on, and it has no effect over him whatsoever. Not only that, but when Frodo later puts the ring on, uh, Tom can see right through that mess. What is Tom Bombadil? What is, what is you, Tom Bombadil? We shall see how well his advice treats our hobbit friends. 
Chapter 8 Fog on the Barrow Downs That night they heard no noises, but either in his dreams or out of them, he could not tell which, Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind. A song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a grey rain curtain, and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver, until at last it was rolled back and a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. Okay, now I have to clean my glasses off. <laughs> I got a smudge on them during the break and now it's driving me crazy. Which, you know, there are... Sometimes you can find really great PDFs for these things. Um, uh, sometimes it's a lot more difficult. And a, a great PDF... Um, what goes into a great PDF? What the heck does that mean? Well, Sam can't read because he's got his glasses off anyway. Well, um, it has to have decent spacing between the letters and the font size has to be reasonably large. This particular one, font size is okay, but the spacing between the individual lines is tough. It's pretty close together. Uh, if I could just have a few, a few pica more, a few pica, pica? Probably not pica, huh? That's a whole different thing. <laughs> if I could just have a little bit more space between each one, that would be great, but they are not terribly editable. The vision melted into waking, and there was Tom whistling like a tree full of birds, and the sun was already slanting down the hill and through the open window. Outside, everything was green and pale gold. After breakfast, which they again ate alone, they made ready to say farewell, as nearly heavy of heart as was possible on such a morning. Cool, bright, and clean, under a washed autumn sky of thin blue. The air came fresh from the northwest. Their quiet ponies were almost frisky, sniffing and moving restlessly. Tom came out of the house and waved his hat and danced upon the doorstep, bidding the hobbits to get up and be off with as good speed as they could muster. They rode off along a path that wound away from behind the house and went slanting up toward the north end of the hillbrow, under which it was sheltered. They had just dismounted to lead their ponies up the last steep slope when suddenly Frodo exclaimed, Goldberry, he cried, my fair lady clad all in silver green. We never said farewell to her, not seen her since the evening. He was so distressed that he turned back, but at that moment a clear call came rippling down. There on the hill-brow she stood beckoning to them. Her hair was flying loose, and as it caught the sun it shone and shimmered. A light like the glint of water on dewy grass flashed from under her feet as she danced. They hastened up the last slope and stood breathless beside her. They bowed, but with a wave of her arm she bade them to look around. And they looked out from the hilltop over the lands under the morning. It was now as clear and far-seen as it had been veiled and misty when they had stood upon the knoll in the forest, which they could now see rising pale and green out of the dark trees in the west. In that direction the land rose in wooded ridges, green, yellow, russet under the sun, beyond which lay hidden the valley of the Brandywine. To the south, over the line of the Withywindle, there was a distant glint like pale glass, where the Brandywine River made a great loop in the lowlands and flowed away out of the knowledge of the hobbits. Northward, beyond the dwindling downs, the land ran away in flats and swelling of grey and green and pale earth colours, until it faded into a featureless and shadowy distance. Eastward, the Barrow Downs rose, ridge behind ridge, into the morning, 
and vanished out of eyesight into a guess. It was no more than a guess of blue and remote white glimmer blending with the hem of the sky, but it spoke to them, out of memory and old tales of the high and distant mountains. They took a deep draft of the air and felt that a skip of a few stout strides would bear them wherever they wished. It seemed faint-hearted to go jogging aside over the crumpled skirts of the towns toward the road, when they should be leaping, as lusty as Tom, over the stepping stones of the hills straight toward the mountains. Goldberry spoke to them and recalled their eyes and their thoughts. Speed now, fair guests, she said, and hold your purpose. North with the wind and the left eye and a blessing upon your footsteps. Make haste while the sun shines. And to Frodo she said, Farewell, elf friend. It was a merry meeting. But Frodo found no words to answer. He bowed low and mounted his pony, and followed by his friends, jogged slowly down the gentle slope behind the hill. Tom Bombadil's house and the valley and the forest were lost to view. The air grew warmer between the green walls of hillside and hillside, and the scent of turf rose strong and sweet as they breathed. Turning back, when they reached the bottom of the green hollow, they saw Goldberry, now small and slender like a sunlit flower against the sky. She was standing still and watching them, and her hands were stretched out toward them. As they looked, she gave a clear call, and lifting up her hand, she turned and vanished behind the hill. Their way wound along the floor of the hollow and round the green feet of a steep hill into another deeper and broader valley, and then over the shoulders of further hills and down their long limbs and up their smooth sides again, up onto new hilltops and down into new valleys. There was no tree nor any visible water. It was a country of grass and short, springy turf, silent except for the whisper of the air over the edges of the land and high, lonely cries of strange birds. As they journeyed, the sun mounted and grew hot. Each time they climbed a ridge, the breeze seemed to have grown less. When they caught a glimpse of the country westward, the distant forest seemed to be smoking, as if the fallen rain was steaming up again from leaf and root and mold. A shadow now lay around the edge of sight, a dark haze above which the upper sky was like a blue cap, hot and heavy. About midday they came to a hill whose top was wide and flattened, like a shallow saucer with a green-mounded rim. Inside there was no air stirring, and the sky seemed near their heads. They rose across and looked northward. Then their hearts rose, for it seemed plain that they had come already further than they had expected. Certainly the distances were now all hazier and more deceptive, but there could be no doubt that the downs were coming to an end. A long valley lay below them, winding away northward, until it came to an opening between two steep boulders. Beyond, there seemed to be no more hills. Due north, they faintly glimpsed a long road line. "'That's a line of trees,' said Mary, "'and must be marking the road.' All along it for many leagues east of the river, there are trees growing. "'Some say they were planted in the old days.' "'Well, splendid,' said Frodo. If we make as good going this afternoon as we have done this morning, we shall have left the downs before the sun sets, and be jogging on in search of a camping place. 
but even as he spoke, he turned his glance eastward, and he saw that on that side the hills were higher and looked down upon them. And all those hills were crowned with green mounds, and on some were standing stones, pointing upward like jagged teeth out of green gums. That view was somehow disquieting, so they turned from the sight and went down to the hollow circle. In the midst of it there stood a single stone, standing tall under the sun above, and at this hour casting no shadow. It was shapeless and yet significant, like a landmark, or a guarding finger, or more like a warning. But they were now hungry, and the sun was still at a fearless noon, so they set their backs against the east side of the stone. It was cool, as if the sun had no power to warm it, but at that time this seemed pleasant. There they took food and drink, and made as good a noon meal under the open sky as anyone could wish, for the food came from down under hill. Tom had provided them with plenty for the comfort of their day. Their ponies unburdened, strayed upon the grass. Riding over the hills and eating their fill, the warm sun and the scent of turf, lying a little too long, stretching out their legs and looking at the sky above their noses, these things are perhaps enough to explain what happened. However, that may be, they woke suddenly and uncomfortably from a sleep they had never meant to take. The standing stone was cold, and it cast a long, pale shadow that stretched eastward over them. The sun, a pale and watery yellow, was gleaming through the mist just above the west wall of the hollow in which they lay. North, south, and east. Beyond the wall, the fog was thick, cold, and white. The air was silent, heavy, and chill. Their ponies were standing crowded together with their heads down. The hobbits sprang to their feet in alarm. Hold for sound. Oh, good, not very long. The hobbits sprang to their feet in alarm and ran to the western rim. They found that they were upon an island in the fog. Even as they looked out in dismay toward the setting sun, it sank before their eyes into a white sea, and a cold gray shadow sprung up in the east behind. The fog rolled up to the walls and rose above them and as it mounted it bent over their heads until it became a roof, and they were shut in to a hall of mist, whose central pillar was the standing stone. They felt as if a trap were closing around them, but they did not quite lose heart. They still remembered the hopeful view that they had of the line of road ahead, and they still knew in what direction it lay. In any case, they had now so great a dislike for that hollow place about the stone that no thought remained of staying there in their minds. They packed up as quickly as their chilled fingers could work. Soon they were leading the ponies in a single file over the rim and down the southward slope of the hill, down into the foggy sea. As they went down, the mist became colder and damper, and their hair hung lank and dripping on their foreheads. When they reached the bottom, it was so cold that they halted and got out cloaks and hoods, which soon became bedewed with gray drops. And then, mounting their ponies, they went slowly on again, feeling their way by the rise and fall of the ground. They were steering, as well as they could guess, for the gate-like opening at the far northward end of the long valley, which they had seen in the morning. Once they were through the gap, they had only to keep on in anything like a straight line, and they were bound, in the end, to strike the road. 
Their thoughts did not go beyond that, except for a vague hope that perhaps away beyond the downs there might be no fog. Their going was very slow. To prevent their getting separated and wandering in different directions, they went in file, with Frodo leading. Sam was behind him, and after him came Pippin and then Merry. The valley seemed to stretch on endlessly. Suddenly, Frodo saw a hopeful sign. On either side, ahead, a darkness began to loom through the mist, and he guessed that they were at last approaching a gap in the hills, the north gate of the Barrow Downs. If they could pass that, they would be free. "'Come on, follow me!' he called back over his shoulder and hurried forward. But his hope soon changed to bewilderment and alarm. The dark patches grew darker, but they shrank, and suddenly he saw a towering ominous before him and leaning slightly toward one another like pillars of a headless door, two huge standing stones. He could not remember having seen any sign of these in the valley when he looked down from the hill in the morning. He had passed between them, almost before he was aware, and even as he did so a darkness seemed to fall around him. His pony reared and snorted, and he fell off. When he looked back, he found that he was alone. The others had not followed him. "'Sam?' he called. "'Pippin?' "'Mary, come along! Why don't you keep up?' There was no answer. Fear took him, and he ran back past the stones, shouting wildly, "'Sam! Sam! Mary! Pippin!' The pony bolted into the mist and vanished. From some way off, or so it seemed, he thought he heard a cry. Oi! Frodo! Oi! It was away eastward, on his left as he stood under the great stone, staring and straining in the gloom. He plunged off in the direction of the call and found himself going steeply uphill. As he struggled on, he called out again and kept on calling more and more frantically, but he heard no answer for some time. And then it seemed faint and far ahead and high above him. came the thin voices out of the mist, and then a cry that sounded like, Help! 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 Often repeated, ending with a last, Help! It trailed off into a long wail suddenly cut short. He stumbled forward with all the speed he could toward the cries, but the light was now gone, and clinging night had closed about him so that it was impossible to be sure of any direction. He seemed all the time to be climbing up and up. Only the change in the level of the ground at his feet told him when he was at last at the top of the ridge or hill. He was weary, sweating, and yet chilled. It was wholly dark. "'Where are you?' he cried out miserably. There was no reply. He stood, listening, and he was suddenly aware that it had gotten very cold that up here a wind was beginning to blow, an icy wind. A change was coming in the weather. The mist was flowing past him now in shreds and tatters. His breath was smoking, and the darkness was less near and thick. He looked up and saw with surprise that faint stars were appearing overhead amidst the strands of hurrying cloud and fog. The wind began to hiss over the grass. He imagined suddenly that he caught a muffled cry, and he made toward it. And even as he went forward, the mist was rolling up and thrust aside, and the starry sky was unveiled. A glance showed him that he was now facing southward, and it was on a round hilltop, which 
He must have climbed from the north. Out of the east, the biting wind was blowing. To his right, there loomed against the westward stars a black shape. A great barrow stood there. Where are you? he cried again, both angry and afraid. Here, said a voice, deep and cold, that seemed to come out of the ground. I am waiting for you. No, said Frodo, but he did not run away. His knees gave and he fell to the ground. Nothing happened, and there was no sound. Trembling, he looked up, in time to see a tall, dark figure like a shadow against the stars. It leaned over him. He thought there were two eyes, very cold, lit with a pale light that seemed to come from some remote distance. And then a grip, stronger and colder than iron, seized him. The icy touch froze his bones, and he remembered no more. When he came to himself again, for a moment he could recall nothing except a sense of dread. And then suddenly he knew that he was imprisoned, caught hopelessly. He was in a barrow. A barrow white had taken him. He was probably under the dreadful spell of the barrow whites about which he had heard whispered tales spoken. He dared not move, but lay as he found himself, flat on his back upon cold stone, with his hands upon his breast. But though his fear was so great that it seemed to be part of the very darkness that was around him, he found himself, as he lay, thinking about Bilbo Baggins, and of his stories, of their jogging along together in the lanes of the Shire talking about roads and adventures. There is a seed of courage, hidden, often deeply, it's true, in the heart of the fattest and most timid hobbit, waiting for some final and desperate danger to make it grow. Frodo was neither very fat nor very timid indeed, though he did not know it. Bilbo and Gandalf both had thought him the very best hobbit in the Shire. He thought he had come to the end of his adventure, at a terrible end. But the thought hardened him. He found himself stiffening as if for a final spring. He no longer felt limp like helpless prey. He lay there, thinking and getting a hold of himself. He noticed all at once that the darkness was slowly giving way. A pale greenish light was growing around him. It did not at first show him what kind of a place he was in, for the light seemed to be coming out of himself and from the floor beside him, and it had not yet reached the roof or the wall. He turned, and there in the cold glow he saw lying beside him Sam, Pippin, and Mary. They were on their backs, and their faces looked deathly pale, and they were clad in white. About them lay many treasures, of gold, maybe, though in that light they looked cold and unlovely. On their heads were circlets. Gold chains were all about their waists, and on their fingers there were many rings. Swords lay by their sides, and shields were at their feet. But across their three necks lay one long, naked sword. Suddenly a song began, a cold murmur rising and falling. The voice seemed far away and immeasurably dreary. Sometimes high in the air and thin, sometimes like a low moan from the ground. 
Out of the formless stream of sad but horrible sounds, strings of words would now and again shape themselves. Grim, hard, cold words, heartless and miserable. The night was railing against the morning of which it was bereaved, and the cold was cursing the warmth for which it hungered. Frodo was chilled to the marrow. After a while, the song became clearer, and with dread in his heart, he perceived that it had changed into an incantation. Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. Never to wake upon stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. In the black wind, the stars shall die, and still on gold, here let them lie. He heard behind his head a creaking and scraping sound. Raising himself up on one arm, he looked and saw now in the pale light that they were in a kind of passage, which behind them turned a corner. Round the corner, a long arm was groping walking on its fingers toward Sam, who was lying nearest, and toward the hilt of the sword that lay upon him. At first, Frodo felt as if he had indeed been turned to stone by the incantation, and then a wild thought of escape came to him. He wondered if he put on the ring whether the barrow white would miss him and he might find some way out. He thought of himself running free over the grass, grieving for Mary and Sam and Pippin, but free and alive himself. Gandalf would admit that there had been nothing else that he could do. But the courage that had been awakened in him now was too strong. He could not leave his friends so easily. He wavered, groping in his pocket, and then fought with himself again, and as he did so, the arm crept nearer. Suddenly, resolve hardened him, and he seized a short sword that lay behind him, and kneeling, he stooped low over the bodies of his companions. With what strength he had, he hewed at the crawling arm near the wrist, and the hand broke off, but at that same moment, the sword splintered up to the hilt. There was a shriek, and the light vanished. 
in the dark, there was a snarling noise. Frodo fell forward over Mary, and Mary's face felt cold. All at once, back into his mind, from which it had disappeared from the first coming of the fog, came the memory of the house down under the hill, and of Tom singing. He remembered the rhyme that Tom had taught them. In a small, desperate voice, he began, Oh, Tom Bombadil. And with that name, his voice seemed to grow. It had a full and lively sound, and the dark chamber echoed as if to drum and trumpet. Oh, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo, by water, wood, and hill, by reed and willow, by fire, sun, and moon, hearken now and hear us. Come, Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. It was a sudden, deep silence in which Frodo could hear his heart beating. After a long, slow moment, he heard plain, but far away, as if it was coming down through the ground or through thick walls, an answering voice singing. Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow. Bright blue his jacket is, his boots are yellow. No one ever caught him yet, for Tom, he's the master. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. There was a loud rumbling sound, as of stones rolling and falling, and suddenly light streamed in, real light, the plain light of day. A low door-like opening appeared at the end of the chamber beyond Frodo's feet, and there was Tom's head hat, feather, and all, framed against the light of the sun rising red behind him. The light fell upon the door and upon the faces of the three hobbits lying beside Frodo. They did not stir, but the sickly hue had left them. They looked now as if they were very deeply asleep. Tom stooped, removed his hat, and came into the dark chamber, singing, Get out, you old white! Vanish in the sunlight, shrivel like the cold mist, like the winds go wailing, out into the barren lands beyond the mountains. Come here never again, leave your burrow empty, lost and forgotten be, darker than the darkness, where gates stand forever shut, till the world is mended. At these words there was a cry, and part of the inner end of the chamber fell with a crash. <coughs> Then there was a long, trailing shriek, fading away into an unguessable distance. And after that, silence. Come, friend Frodo, said Tom. Let us get out on the clean grass. You must help me bear them. Together they carried out Mary, Pippin, and Sam. As Frodo left the barrow for the last time, he thought he saw a severed hand wriggling still like a wounded spider in a heap of fallen earth. Tom went back in again, and there was a sound of much thumping and stamping. Then he came out, and he was bearing in his arms a great load of treasure, things of gold, silver, copper, and bronze, many beads and chains and jeweled ornaments. He climbed the green barrow and laid them all on top in the sunshine. There he stood, with his hat in his hand and the wind in his hair, and looked down upon the three hobbits that had been laid on their backs upon the grass at the wet side of the mound. 
Raising his right hand, he said in a clear and commanding voice, Wake now, my merry lads. Wake and hear me calling. Warm now, be heart and limb. The cold stone is fallen. Dark door is standing wide. Dead hand is broken. Night under night is flown. And the gate is open. To Frodo's great joy, the hobbits stirred stretched their arms, rubbed their eyes, and then suddenly sprang up. They looked about in amazement, first at Frodo and then at Tom standing large as life on the barrow top above them, and then at themselves in their thin white rags, crowned and belted with pale gold and jingling with trinkets. "'What in the name of wonder?' began Merry, feeling the golden circlet that had slipped over one eye. Then he stopped, and a shadow came over his face, and he closed his eyes. Of course, oh, you remember, he said. The men of Karn Dim came upon us at night, and we were worsted. Oh, the spear that got my heart! He clutched at his breast. No, no, he said, opening his eyes. What am I saying? I've been dreaming. Where did you get to, Frodo? I thought that I was lost, said Frodo. But I don't want to speak of it. Let us think of what we're going to do now. Let us go on. Dressed up like this, sir, said Sam. What are my clothes? He flung his circlet, belt, and rings on the grass and looked around hopelessly, as if he expected to find his cloak, jacket, and breeches, and other hobbit garments lying somewhere close at hand. You won't find your clothes again, said Tom bending down from the mound and laughing as he danced around them in the sunlight. One would have thought that nothing dangerous or dreadful had happened, and indeed the horror faded out of their hearts as they looked upon him, and saw the merry glint in his eyes. "'What do you mean?' asked Pippin, looking at him, half puzzled and half amused. "'Why not?' But Tom shook his head, saying, "'You've found yourselves again, out of the deep water.' Clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning. Be glad, my merry friends, and let the warm sunlight heal now heart and limb. Cast off these cold rags, run naked on the grass while Tom goes a-hunting. He sprang away down the hill, whistling and calling. Looking down after him, Frodo saw him running away southward along the green hollow between their hill and the next, still whistling and crying, Hey now, come oi now! Whither do you wander? Up, down, near and far, here and there or yonder. Sharp ears, wise nose, swish tail and bumpkin. White socks, my little lad, and old fatty lumpkin. So he sang, running fast, tossing his hat and catching it again until he was hidden by a fold in the ground. But for some time there was... Hey now, oh no, came floating back along the wind, which shifted round toward the south. The air was growing very warm again. The hobbits sat about for a while in the grass, as he had told them. Then they lay basking in the sun with the delight of those that had been wafted suddenly from bitter wind to friendly climb, or of people that, after being long ill and bedridden, wake one day to find that they are unexpectedly well and the day is again full of promise. By the time that Tom returned, they were feeling strong and hungry. He reappeared hat first over the brow of the hill, and behind him came in an obedient line six ponies, 
their own five, and one more. The last was plainly old Fatty Lumpkin. He was larger, stronger, and fatter, and older, than their own ponies. Mary, to whom the others belonged, had not in fact given them any such names, but they answered to the new ones that Tom had given them for the rest of their lives. Tom called them one by one, and they climbed over brow and stood in a line. Then Tom bowed to the hobbits. Here are your ponies now, he said. They've more sense, in some ways, than you wandering hobbits have. More sense in their noses. For they sniff danger ahead while you walk right into it. And if they run to save themselves, then they run the right way. You must forgive them all, for though their hearts are fitful, the face of the Barrow Whites is not what they were made for. See, here they come again, bringing all their burdens. Sam, Mary, and Pippin now clothed themselves in spare garments from their packs, and soon they felt too hot, for they were obliged to put on some of the thicker and warmer things they had brought against the oncoming winter. Where does that other old animal, that fatty lumpkin, come from? asked Frodo. He is mine, said Tom. My four-legged friend, though I seldom ride him, and he wanders often far, free upon the hillsides. When your ponies stayed with me, they got to know my lumpkin, and they smelt him in the night and quickly ran to meet him. I thought he'd look for them, and with his words of wisdom, take all of their fear away. But now, my jolly lumpkin, old Tom is going to ride. Hey, he's coming with you, just to set you on the road, so he needs a pony. For you cannot easily talk to hobbits that are riding when you are on your own legs trying to trot along beside them. The hobbits were delighted to hear this and thanked Tom many times, but he laughed and said that they were so good at losing themselves he would not feel happy till he had seen them safely over the borders of this land. "'I have got things to do,' he said. "'My making and my singing, my talking and my walking, and my watching of this country. Tom cannot always be near the open doors and willow cracks. Tom has his own house to mind, and Goldberry is waiting.' It was still fairly early by the sun, something between nine and ten, and the hobbits turned their minds to food. Their last meal had been lunch beside the standing stone the day before. They breakfasted now off the remainder of Tom's provisions, meant for supper, with additions that Tom had brought with him. It was not a large meal, considering hobbits and the circumstances, but they felt much better for it. While they were eating, Tom went up to the mound and looked around through the treasures. Most of these he made into a pile that glistened and sparkled on the grass. He bade them lie there, free to all finders, birds, beasts, elves or men, and all kindly creatures. For so the spell of the mound should be broken and scattered, and no white should ever come back to it. He chose for himself from a pile a brooch set with blue stones, many shaded like flax flowers or the wings of blue butterflies, he looked long at it, as if stirred by some memory, shaking his head and saying at last, Here is a pretty toy for Tom and his lady. Fair was she who long ago wore this upon her shoulder. Goldberry shall wear it now, and we will not forget her. For each of the hobbits he chose a dagger, long, leaf-shaped, and keen, of marvelous workmanship, damasked with serpent forms in red and gold. They gleamed as he drew them from their black sheaths, wrought of some strange metal, light and strong and set with many fiery stones. 
Whether by some virtue in these sheets, or because of a spell that laid upon the mound, the blades seemed untouched by time, unrusted, sharp, glittering in the sun. "'Old knives are long enough to be swords for hobbit people,' he said. "'Sharp blades are good to have, if shire folk go walking east, south, or far away into dark and danger.' Then he told them that these blades were forged many years ago by men of Westerness. They were the foes of the Dark Lord, but they were overcome by the evil king of Karndim in the land of Angmar. "'Few now remember them,' Tom murmured. "'Yet still some go wandering, sons of forgotten kings walking in loneliness, guarding from evil things folk that are heedless.' The hobbits did not understand his words, but as he spoke them, they had a vision, as if it were a great expanse of years behind them, like a vast shadowy plain over which strode the shapes of men, tall and grim with bright swords. At last came one with a star upon his brow. Then the vision faded, and they were back in the sunlit world. It was time to start again. They made ready, packing their bags, bags, Judas, can bring the boy out of Jersey. They made ready, packing their bags and lading their ponies. Their new weapons they hung upon their leather belts under their jackets, feeling them very awkward and wondering if they would be of any use. Fighting had not before occurred to any of them as one of the adventures which their flight would land them. At last, they set off. They let their ponies down the hill, and then, mounting, they trotted quickly along the valley. They looked back and saw that the top of the old mound on the hill, and from it the sunlight on the gold went up like a yellow flame. Then they turned on a shoulder of the downs, and it was hidden from view. Though Frodo looked about him on every side, he saw no sign of the great stones standing like a gate, and before long they came to the northern gap and rode swiftly through, and the land fell away before them. It was a merry journey with Tom Bombadil trotting gaily along beside them, or before them, on Fatty Lumpkin, who could move much faster than his girth promised. Tom sang most of the time, but it was chiefly nonsense, or else part of a strange language unknown to the hobbits, an ancient language whose words were mainly those of wonder and delight. They went forward steadily, but they soon saw that the road was further away than they had imagined. Even without a fog, their sleep at midday would have prevented them from reaching it until after nightfall on the day before. The dark line that they had seen was not a line of trees, but a line of bushes growing on the edge of a deep dike with a steep wall on the further side. Tom said that it had once been the boundary of a kingdom, but a very long time ago. He seemed to remember something sad about it and would not say very much. They climbed down and out of the dike and through a gap in the wall, and then Tom turned due north, for they had been bearing somewhat to the west. The land was now open and fairly level, and they quickened their pace, but the sun was already sinking low when at last they saw a line of tall trees ahead, and they knew that they had come back to the road after many unexpected adventures. They galloped their ponies over the last furlongs and halted under the long shadows of the trees. They were on top of a sloping bank, and the road, now dim as evening drew on, wound away below them. At this point it ran nearly from southwest to northeast, and on their right it fell quickly down into a wide hollow. 
It was rutted and bore many signs of a recent heavy rain. There were pools and potholes full of water. They rode down the bank and looked up and down. There was nothing to be seen. Well, here we are again at last, said Frodo. I suppose we haven't lost more than two days by my shortcut through the forest, but perhaps the delay will prove useful. It may have put them off our trail. The others looked at him. The shadow of the fear of the Black Riders came suddenly over them again. Ever since they had entered the forest, they had thought chiefly of getting back to the road. Only now, when it lay beneath their feet, did they remember the danger which pursued them, and was more than likely to be lying in wait for them back upon the road itself. They looked anxiously back toward the setting sun, but the road was brown and empty. "'Do you think,' said Pippin, hesitatingly, "'do you think that we may be pursued tonight?' "'No.' "'I hope not tonight,' answered Tom Bombadil. "'Nor perhaps the next day, but do not trust my guess, for I cannot tell for certain. "'Out east my knowledge fails. "'Tom is not master of black riders from the black land beyond this country.' "'All the same, the hobbits wished he would be coming with them. "'They felt that he would know how to deal with the black riders, if anyone did. "'They would soon now be going forward into the lands wholly strange to them, and beyond all of the most vague and distant legends of the Shire, and in the gathering twilight they longed for home. A deep loneliness and sense of loss was on them. They stood silent, reluctant to make the final parting, and only slowly became aware that Tom was wishing them farewell, and telling them to have good heart and to ride on till dark without halting. "'Tom will give you good advice till this day is over.' After that, your own luck must go with you and guide you. Four miles along the road, you'll come to find a village. Bree under Bree Hill, with doors looking westward. There you'll find an old inn that is called the Prancing Pony. Barleyman Butterbur is the worthy keeper. There you can stay the night, and afterward, in the morning, you will speed upon your way. Be bold, but wary. Keep up your merry hearts, and ride on to meet your fortune." They begged him to come with them at least as far as the inn and drink once more with them, but he laughed and refused, saying, "'Tom's country ends here. He will not pass the borders. Tom has his house to mind, and Goldberry is waiting.' Then he turned, tossed up his hat, leapt on Lumpkin's back, and rode up over the bank and away, singing into the dusk. The hobbits climbed up and watched him until he was out of sight. "'I am sorry to take leave of Master Bombadil,' said Sam. "'He's a caution and no mistake. I reckon we could go a good deal further and see no better, nor queer. But I won't deny I'll be glad to see this prancing pony he spoke of. I hope it'll be like the Green Dragon back home. What sort of folk are they in Bree?' "'There are hobbits in Bree,' said Mary, "'as well as big folk.' I dare say it'll be home like enough. The pony's a good inn by all accounts. My people ride out there now and again. It may be all that we could wish, said Frodo, but it's outside the Shire all the same. Do not make yourselves too much at home. Please remember, all of you, the name of Baggins must not be mentioned. I am Mr. Underhill, if any name is to be given. They now mounted their ponies and rode off silently into the evening. 
Darkness came down quickly, as they plodded along downhill and up again until at last they saw lights twinkling some distance ahead. Before them rose Bree Hill, barring the way, a dark mass against misty stars, and under its western flank nestled a large village. Toward it they now hurried, desiring only to find a fire and a door between them and the night. it so far i am having a grand old time um all of these uh all these descriptions right we were talking a little bit about this in some of our earlier episodes all of these descriptions are have so much more depth than they did before right we we, we spent you know a two full paragraphs i think in the last chapter talking about the intensity of the rain and how the storm grew over time uh right now all of these different descriptions of um, uh, the ways, the paths in which they are trying to traverse the Barrow Downs, all of this, um, it's, it can be a little bit hard to track at times, but, uh, overall, I mean, I always love hearing a good description of a rainstorm, some, someone doing a great job describing a rainstorm, that I can get behind. What do you think, gang? What has thus far struck you the most? You know, we're, we're sort of back on track now, right? Um, the Prancing Pony, Bree, Barlam, and Butterbur. These are all things that we may recognize that we are sort of catching back up to where the movie left us. Um, uh, where, I should say where we kind of left the movie for a while. And now we're, we're back on that same track. Um, uh, JT says, have you ever seen the rain coming down on a sunny day? Indeed. Indeed. Uh, the rain comes... And, and frankly, uh, JT, the answer is not... Not often recently. I'm from the Midwest where we get plenty of, of, uh, plenty of rain. Um, and now I live over in Southern California where we do not get nearly as much rain and I miss it terribly. Um, my, my sister was just asking me about uh, kind of what my perfect day looks like. And uh, I told her that it's, a, it's one of those late autumn rainstorms where the rain is really cold. Uh, and it's falling upon oranges and yellows rather than greens and browns. That's that's my favorite day. Spent somewhere that I can enjoy it. Um, near a forest someplace is good. Um, somewhere in like a cabin or some small, some small shelter with lots of windows for the rain to hit against. Orly Rose says, literally my weather today. I am... Very glad to hear that you are having my favorite weather. Uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Um, yeah, I, I miss it terribly. Yeah, Sparkle of Good says, I, I, I am also from the Midwest and moved west recently. I miss the storms so much. Yeah. Yep. Wildcard says, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned the non-Latin vocabulary that Tom used. Would you be able to go deeper into that? Well, it was, uh, it was something that I want to say um, uh, our friend... Uh, Pretty Spade noticed initially, or something that you you observed. Um, Pretty Spade. So yeah, if, if Pretty Spade wants to go into a little bit more of that, but uh, yeah, so it is not exclusively non-Latin words, of course, but um, there are lots of Latin words that we use 
frequently, right? Latin has found its way into English uh, in a very deep manner. I, of course, couldn't name all of the ones that are used very often, but uh, um, there are there are lots of words that could have been chosen uh, for, for Tom Bombadil to use, and we find that he doesn't use many of them, right? Uh, there, there are so many, like, uh, Pretty Spade says, yeah, I don't know uh, how to go into that more. It just avoids words with Latin roots. Yeah, so oftentimes we will find that, um, let me see if I can find one right here, because I, I think Tolkien himself kind of uh, doesn't love them, him, uh, love him initially. Um, I want to say inhabited is one, um, and, and I'm going to get some of these wrong, all right? So please do not, uh, please do not go into this on with, with me here. Um, let me see. Uh, independent, I believe. Let me see. Inhabitants. Uh, according. I want to say these are, are Latin words, Latin root words. But, um, yeah, he does have a, a different way of speaking. Um, so, again, like I said, I'm going to be wrong about these. But, um, I think what the intent is, is sort of to indicate, like, it's uh, Tom Bombadil's separation from some of the older places, right? Some, some of these things that we consider ancient civilizations. We're talking about the Barrow Downs, right? And, and Tom is like right next door to the Barrow Downs here. We could easily say like, oh, he, Tom is ancient. Is he like from the Barrow Downs? Is that kind of his whole deal? But no, I think without ever saying the words, without ever making it a simile or a metaphor that Tom is older than some of these ancient civilizations where languages have sort of risen and fallen and been absorbed into new places, Tom is distinct from those. It's not like, he, I think some of the language that he uses would sort of help to indicate in kind of a subconscious way to speakers of English that, oh, there's something different about the way that he talks. Uh, and as such, I don't have a strong connection with him you know, in spite of the fact that when we listen to Latinate words, especially the, the deeper Latin, um, the, 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 I'll say, the more preserved Latin um, uh, that is part of English, when we listen to that, we, we've got a sense that there's something sort of older about it, right? When you hear Latin, you know, uh, Spiritus Sanctus, right? That, that reads to you and, and to your subconscious mind as, oh yeah, ancient. But, but... When we hear Tom talk about all these ancient things and then keep himself separate from that, that is that is an interesting little observation, uh, just based on the fact that it sort of keeps him separate. It keeps it it keeps us from saying, "Oh yeah, Tom, he's he's from those old civilizations." No, we can listen to Tom when Tom says, "I'm older than those." Um, JT says Tom speaks in a style of verse called the 14er, common among old Anglo-Saxon verse, and Tom was described by Tolkien as the spirit of the English countryside. Interesting. Uh, Wildcard says, I can't put my finger on it, but he does have a different way of talking. Uh, Purdy says, I think Tolkien was trying to give, uh, GB its own unique mythology. GB. What are we talking about here? GB. Great Britain, probably Great Britain. Uh, I think Tolkien was trying to give Great Britain its unique mythology that meant not drawing on Roman aspects, including their language. So he does avoid those words generally, but especially with ancient characters like Tom. Right, trying to, because trying to, uh, again, we're not talking about the real world, as Proteus Spade rightly observes here. You know, it's not like Tom Bombadil is using, <laughs> using words uh, with like Akkadian origins or something. Um, no, he's trying to describe... Great Britain as the ancient thing, right? This ancient thing that has existed 
prior to the uh, the Roman incursions there, etc., etc. Um, all this is probably a deeper history um, than I am going to be able to give to you all uh, in an instructive fashion. But I would absolutely urge you, uh, as I as I try to do here, this is like. That, that's sort of the point of what I try to do here is take some of these things that might be kind of familiar to you. You know, you might remember uh, <laughs> Orlando Bloom surfing down a stone staircase on a shield. But I want to remind you, there are interesting things to find if you dig in a little bit deeper here. Um, 14er. Go go, just Google the word 14er. That is going to be a, as good a place as any to start. Um, uh, and, you know, if we... If we are to understand that Tom is indeed a spirit of the English countryside, what does that mean? What are the things about Tom that indicate and place Tom as a spirit of the English countryside? What does that mean? We can dig in a little bit further. Um, we can dig into the Roman incursions into you know, the, the Roman Empire and their expansion out into Great Britain. And what was there before that? What was there before the, the Romans were building their stone walls? What happened? What was here? What was here first? Why is it that the the history of Great Britain and this spirit of, of Great Britain, if that is indeed what uh, Tolkien intends for Tom Bombadil to be, what does it mean that he sets himself as something separate from the standing stones and the walls and their mounds with buried kings in gold? something to investigate and something for you all to enjoy uh, as you go out into your wider parts of the world i want to remind you all my name is sam i want to remind you that this is sidecar stories i want to remind you that if you would like to talk more about the show uh we of course have our discord uh which is absolutely fantastic um head on over to discord if you want to find discord and all the various other places uh that you can find sidecar stories stuff well go ahead and use the links command at any time um that will, of course, take you to the Linktree, Linktree slash Sidecar Stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Sidecar Stories. Uh, and I can see JT, <laughs> JT's got the wiki open. Um, Orly Rose says, uh, yes, indeed. Orly Rose, who do we have singing for you? There's our question. There's our question for right now. Um, Orly Rose, who do you choose? Choose your champion. <laughs> Happy birthday, Orly Rose, indeed. And somebody's going to be singing to you. We need someone to get out here and sing a song. What do we think? What do we think, Orly Rose? You knew the question was coming. Oh, Pippin, interesting. <laughs> Although the barrel white would be cool. Certainly could. Happy birthday. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I don't want to be scaring any children to death. Not outside the chapter. I'll do it in the chapter, but not outside the chapter. Oh! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday, Orly Rose! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday, Orly Rose! <laughs> Our boy Pippin! <laughs> Pippin got pipes. <laughs> Pippin's got pipes. Uh, Orly Rose says Pippin is my favorite character aside from Faramir. Last year, someone's scary. Uh, wait, what? Last year, someone's scary, Ang, but I forgot who. What? 
Oh, someone's scary saying, but I forgot who. Oh, I gotcha. It was probably um, probably one of our... Let's see, if it was last year, I'll bet that was Percy Jackson territory. Because, yes, we had started reading, I want to say, we'd started reading uh, Hunger Games by then. But I don't believe we'd gotten into it enough to know a lot of voices from it yet. Uh, but, yeah, if y'all are wondering what I spend my time doing, if you are wondering why I am here, well, I do this. And I do this quite a bit. If you want to find out more about the other books that we've read, uh, just on Thursdays, or or this show that now exists on Thursdays, we have read the entirety of the Harry Potter series, the original Percy Jackson series, the Hunger Games, and now we are embarking here on this journey into The Lord of the Rings, a long-anticipated book read. Um, and then, of course, uh, we've got our second show. We've got uh, Vintage Sidecar, where we shed some light on Classic Lit. Uh, now delving into the Sherlock Holmes series, but of course we have done uh, A Christmas Carol, and Murder on the Orient Express, and The Hobbit, etc, etc. Let me go ahead um, and call up that command there. Um, uh, let's see, what else? Great Gatsby, Frankenstein, um, Telltale Heart, Dagon, which we read the, the sort of next book in that Dagon uh, cycle, uh, we have read um, uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth. It was a huge one, but we got the whole thing done. We read the entire Shadow Over Innsmouth, and it gave me the idea for like a miniatures skirmish game, but where you're playing as investigators trying to escape a little town. Look, we'll talk more about it later. Uh, I had I had tons of ideas over there that is still sort of in the back. It's, on, it's not even on the back burner. It's in like the warming drawer, but it's still there. It's still there, and I think about it often. As I'm as I lay my head down to sleep at night, I just think about how cool that would be. Uh, and so we'll have to uh, we'll have to talk about that a little bit later on. Sparkle Lovegood says, after we're done here, I need to go back and listen to Tuesday's Sherlock Holmes. Well, actually, you don't, Sparkle Lovegood. That's the thing. Not this week, and not last week. Why not last week? Because I was sick. Why not this week? Because I got one I got one page into Sherlock Holmes, and uh, uh, the the internet for like my whole neighborhood, my whole zip code crashed mine and a couple others around it so uh yeah it was down for like four or five hours i'm glad it was down for four or five hours and not like 30 minutes because i hate it when i say you know what i'm not gonna be able to stream today and then immediately bink the 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 internet's back on so i'm glad of that at least but um that is where we find ourselves uh unfortunately sparkle lovegood um if you are caught up through two weeks ago uh then you are fully caught up uh, but, of course, at any time, y'all, follow that playlist command, but uh, if you are looking for Sherlock Holmes, you will find those uh, wherever you get your podcasts under the heading Vintage Sidecar. If you're looking for this and many of our previous read-throughs, you will find that under uh, the heading uh, Flying Sidecar. And then, of course, we have got our Wednesday campaign, the tabletop RPG wing of Sidecar Stories, Side Cannons! <laughs> That's progressively smaller cannons, kind of a fractal thing. Um, there are actually infinite cannons going off. You just can't hear them. I'm doing kind of a ventriloquist thing. Um, yeah, there was a page of it. I actually took it down because I, I think it was confusing people. I took it off of uh, off of Twitch. And uh, when we jump back in next week, I'm going to just... I'm, I promise I will read that page over again. <laughs> that was a... Yeah, that was a uh, sort of a... Um, that was a, a non-existent, a, a stream that has gone up like vapor into the clouds. No, this is not a cigarette. I know it looks like it. I just keep, I've got little wooden dowels all over my desk. Don't worry. Um, folks. Folks. 
I want to thank you all so much for being here. I'll see y'all later. Have a great week, folks. Bye-bye.